Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that prayer supplication. And, and I just want to take a moment and thank everybody that has a hand in helping to, to lead worship here at Cornerstone. Uh, the various ones that uh, do responsive reading and the prayers. Uh, we appreciate them and uh, appreciate the uh, music. Uh, Sister Amy does so wonderfully on the piano. We, we, we certainly appreciate her. Pastor Mark done a wonderful job in leading us in singing God's, uh, to God's glory and praise and the songs. I appreciate also our production team faithfully up, up, upstairs, out of sight, out of mind, up there. Well, they're not out of their minds. Sometimes they're out of our mind. We don't think about them being up there and keeping things going as far as the sound and, and all of that. But, but I just appreciate everybody that, that's so willing to be a part of uh, the ushers, uh, when we receive the Lord's Supper, you know, the, the deacons and uh, appreciate that uh, ordinance committee. So, so many people have a hand in enabling us to enjoy worship. Before I get into the message, and by the way, you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to the first epistle of John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. But, I have a magic box here. Out of it, I'm going to bring a genie. No, not, not really. It's just a simple little box here that we have christened and ordained to be the pastor's question box. Probably one of the first at Cornerstone. And anyway, so you're asking. You're very inquisitive. I know in your minds you're wondering, what is it for? It's so that you can offer questions for your pastors. Uh, as I preach through this series in, on, on heaven, uh, there may be questions that you'll have related to heaven that you'd like to submit and uh, to the best of my ability, with the help of the pastoral team, we'll uh, try to answer your questions. And even beyond this series, surely there are times that you have questions related to the Bible, questions that you have about you know, theology that you might want to uh, submit for the pastors to help come up with an answer for you. So it's the pastor's question box, and you, we'll have it out there in the vestibule by the information desk and you feel free to just take a plain piece of paper put your question in there and we'll check it and we'll try to answer your question so there you go alright that um, explained everybody I'm sure will be rushing to the pastor's question box oh by the way no cheating no reaching in and pulling out other people's questions and reading them okay alright alright let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle John writes this word of warning to the early Christians in that first century setting. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. But it is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. As we continue on on the subject of heaven in this series, I want to talk about our longing for heaven. Uh, the longing that you and I as, as God's people should have for heaven. And let me just give this um, Disclaimer, you know, certainly it's important that you understand that our primary source 
in this series and any message that we bring is always the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. There are secondary sources I thank the Lord for that assist me in, in, in this series. And I, I want to give a proper uh, credit to those. The two secondary sources at this point that I am drawing from and developing this series, one of the first is uh, Dr. John MacArthur's The Glory of Heaven, a wonderful book. Highly, I highly recommend it if you want to just have a good, deep uh, theological understanding of the glory of heaven. And then Dr. Randy Alcorn's book, simply entitled Heaven. So throughout the series, naturally I'll be gravitating to the scriptures because that's our primary source. And we'll talk about the importance of the Bible in understanding heaven, but also realize that God has blessed us with great scholarly men such as Dr. Alcorn and Dr. MacArthur to help us in understanding that. So as, as we think about longing for heaven, I think about, I was reading in, in Dr. Alcorn, or Alcorn's book about Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan pastor, um, and, and his love for heaven. And he preached often about heaven. And, and he gave this quote from uh, Jonathan Edwards. It says, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. C.S. Lewis, that great Christian writer, says this. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Suffice it to say that God's people ought to have a continual present longing that drives them that blessed hope of heaven. As we look at the scriptures and we think about even in the Old Testament, we think about those great men and women of faith and how even that they were very engaged in this world and they understood the hand of God upon them in this world. They understood also by faith this world was not their home. And there was that longing. I think about David in that wonderful pastoral psalm, the 23rd Psalm, as he's closing out that psalm. He says, surely goodness and mercy will go with me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shared with you the last message how, how Job, you know, in that oldest book of the Bible, talked about even when he died, he realized that one day he would be in the presence of God in his very flesh. In Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 10, we're told about Abraham. This is, the, this is the word that is said about Abraham in that great hall of faith chapter, if you will, in Hebrews eleven ten, It says, talking about Abraham, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. As you read the scriptures, it's interesting because the word that the Hebrew uses to describe heaven means the heights. And think about it, every time that, we, that, that, that there's reference to God, there's reference to heaven, He's always looking up. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Always people are looking up towards God. And when God considers His creation, He's always looking down. So the Hebrew word means the heights. In the New Testament, it's interesting that the word that refers to heaven is Uranus, from which we get the name of the planet Uranus that we have in our solar system. And that's the word that refers, again, looking up. And God is lifted up and, and heaven is always up. 
Not only did the Old Testament saints have a deep longing for heaven, but obviously those who had experienced Christ and, and understood the gospel had this deep longing and, and, and yearning for heaven. Jesus, when he began his ministry, let me, you know, when you go back to the gospel of Matthew, my goodness, right out of the gate when the Son of God began his earthly public ministry, Listen, he was preaching a message there in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, his first message. He, Jesus is preaching he says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his most powerful message that I, can, I consider that Jesus preached here on the face of the earth. We know it as the, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus was given those wonderful uh, beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn, blessed are the meek and blessed are the hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and blessed are those who are merciful and blessed are those who are pure in heart. Jesus went on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And on and on in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to, for your reward is in heaven, verse 12 in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. There also in chapter 5, in verse 16, Jesus talks about how God will, how, how God's, uh, gets the glory when we, we are the light of the world. He says, and let, he says, let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Over and over, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, verse 19. The kingdom of heaven, in verse 20. Jesus, no doubt, was engaged in this world. He was God incarnate. He was in the midst of man. He was God in the flesh. He was fully God, fully man. Jesus was engaged in His earthly ministry, but His sights were always set on His eternal destination. He was always pointing people towards heaven. He was always generating within the souls of people this longing for heaven. I challenge you this morning with the question, what about you? How many days do you spend dwelling upon heaven? How many hours of a day do you think about heaven? Where is the longing in your heart for? That eternal home that awaits those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I think about the Apostle Paul. You talk about somebody that had a deep longing for heaven. Listen to what Paul says in Romans in chapter 8. If you want to turn and look with me there. Romans in chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. Paul understood that, oh yes, we're here on this earth and we have a purpose in this earth and we should make the most of every day on this earth. But nothing compares to the glory of the heaven that God has waiting for us. Paul went on, if you go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, as Paul is describing the challenges that he faces in, in his earthly journey and his earthly ministry and in, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, listen to what Paul says in verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul left no mistake or any question about what happens to the believer once he leaves this life. I think about the words of the Apostle Peter when we think about those New Testament saints who had a deep longing for heaven in 1 Peter 
In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, listen to how Peter encourages those first century Christians who were undergoing the fiery trials of tribulation and persecution and pain and many of them suffering physically, emotionally. Listen, Peter says to them in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is what Peter is saying to encourage those. In verse 5 he goes on to say, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if you need, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is saying to those blessed brothers and sisters who are undergoing the fires of trials of tribulation. He's saying, listen, yes, these are tough times. And I think about Christians who are being persecuted today in other parts of the world. And I think about Christians in this country who are coming under ostracism by a secular government and a pagan society. Listen, you'll understand what Peter is saying. Yes, you're going to face trials and there will be tribulation. And there will be times of testing. But Peter says, keep your sights on the glory of heaven. There was a deep longing in Peter's heart. My, as we think about one who longed for heaven... Yearn for heaven. What about the Apostle John? There in exile on that, on that desert island of Patmos as he was encountering in that great vision that Jesus spoke to him, the revelation, if you will. Listen to the words of yearning and the words of longing for heaven that we find in, in Revelation in chapter 22 as he's closing out this great revelation in chapter 22, verse 17. He says, And the Spirit and the Bride the Holy Spirit of God and the people of God are agreeing. In verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come! In other words, let heaven come. And let him who hears say, Come! And let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And then as John is closing out this powerful, great revelation and he's closing out the pages of Scripture in verse 20 of chapter 22 of Revelation. He says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. That's the last words that we find recorded in the Scriptures that Jesus says. Surely. No doubt about it. You don't have to speculate about this. Surely I am coming quickly. In other words, suddenly. Jesus says, I will come. And John's response reveals his longing for heaven. John's response ought to be our response. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. I ask you again, does that kind of a longing for heaven and yearning for the hope of heaven exist in your life? Is it a part of your daily life? Is it a part of your witness to your family? Or do you find yourself falling into the trap that John warns those early Christians and that is with an obsession for the world. Folks, it's an easy trap to fall into. It's a prevalent trap for God's people today. Especially for those of us living in this western hemisphere. 
obsession with the world diminishes our enthusiasm for heaven. It's a fact. Makes me think about, and I know you've heard this story, an old preacher was preaching on heaven and he asked just right off, how many of you all want to go to heaven? And hands shot up all over the sanctuary, except for one boy that was sitting there near the front. Preacher thought, well, maybe he wasn't paying attention. He didn't hear me. So again, he blurted out this question. How many of you all want to go to heaven? And again, hands went up all over the place. But again, the boy's hand didn't go up. The preacher's confused. He's puzzled. And he says, son, what's the matter? Don't you want to go to heaven? And the little boy replied, well, sure, sir. But the way you're talking, it sounds like you're getting up a busload to go right now. Folks, let me tell you something. Sometimes we can get so distracted with our surroundings and our own lives in this world that we lose sight of the deepest and greatest longing of the heart of a believer, and that is that of our heavenly home. Is there a yearning in your heart? Contemporary Western Hemisphere Christians lack heavenly zeal. I'm sorry. It's a fact. Most American Christians would affirm that they're going to heaven, but... They're not so enamored, but, but, but they're so enamored and with, and they're so conditioned by, and they're so dependent upon our possessions and our creature comforts and our materialistic possessions and our conveniences and this materialistic lifestyle that when you mention heaven, there's almost a yawn. As if you're talking about next year's vacation. Where is that burning, sincere? Deep yearning to be in the presence of God, to be in that great celestial throne room of God in the very presence of angels. Where is the zeal in the life of believers? Listen, those who suffer persecution and those who suffer poverty and those who are suffering in the midst of war and see the ravages of human sinfulness. Listen, let me tell you something. There is no lack of zeal in their hearts. You go into a third world country where people are suffering on a daily basis with starvation or poverty or ravages of war. You ask them about, you ask the average believer about their opinion of heaven. If they don't approach you first, one of the first things they'll say, I can't wait for heaven. I think about heaven every day. I yearn for heaven. My heart beats for heaven. I can't wait till I can leave this world and make my way that journey to God in the presence of heaven. The Apostle Paul, as we saw earlier in, in Romans, Paul understood the whole idea of yearning for heaven. I think about what the Apostle Paul said over in 2 Corinthians. Listen to the, the, that sense of yearning in his heart in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 8. Paul says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Listen to what he says, verse 16 in that same chapter. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Folks, let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul had every reason, every humanly reason to lose heart, to give up. You're talking about a man that was falsely arrested. He was beaten repeatedly to the nth degree 
allowed under Roman law. He's thrown into one prison after another prison after another prison. He was, he was dragged outside of the city limits and stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked, bitten by poisonous, poisonous vipers. And finally we know that he was beheaded. But listen to what Paul says. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and great our eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you the secret to Paul's deep confidence and his wonderful optimism. It was because his sights weren't looking at the world. His sights were not set on the world. His mind was not preoccupied with the things of this world and what he could gain in this world. His sights were on heaven. And he had a deep and long and yearning for heaven. That's why, as I shared in a previous message out of Colossians, when Paul challenged all of us, certainly believers at the, at the church of Colossae, there in Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 2, where Paul says, Set your minds on the things above, not on things on the earth. You see, he understood what John is warning us in, 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 in 1 John chapter 2 when John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the, the love of the Father is not in you. And that's what Paul is saying in Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Set your minds on the things above. Get your focus on heaven and the things of heaven. I think it's interesting, Dr. Alcorn pointed this out, that the word the, the Apostle Paul uses there in the Greek, when he uses that phrase, set your mind, is the same word in the Greek that Jesus used in Luke's Gospel. In chapter 19 and verse 10, when Jesus is teaching about, he said, when he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save, to set your mind on is to seek after something, to yearn after, to desire it. It's the same word that the Lord used in Matthew 18, 12 when He talked about the shepherd who had lost his sheep and He went out to find that sheep. He's seeking after that sheep. He's yearning for that sheep. Same word that Jesus used in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 18 when He talked about the woman who searches for that lost coin. Listen, that precious coin, that thing that means so much. Listen, how much does heaven mean to you? What is the value of your eternal residence in the presence of God? Is it something that you, your heart every morning you wake up yearning for? Because that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. To be heavenly minded. So when we think about heaven, there ought to be a longing for heaven in the hearts of God's people. No doubt about it. And I believe that longing for, for heaven comes out of our understanding of heaven. And that's what I want to address now. Our understanding of heaven. And certainly I'm not going to delve into all the intricate details of heaven. Gradually we'll look at all of the, uh, many of those details as we move forward in the series. But you know the Bible, as I said earlier, is our primary source. When it comes to knowing and understanding heaven. One of the reasons there's not a deep longing in the hearts of so many people calling themselves Christians is they don't know the Bible. They don't read the Bible. They don't study the Bible. They don't dig into the wonderful treasure of God's Word to understand all that God is teaching us. 
The Bible is full of information about heaven. 580 times in the Scriptures, there's reference to heaven. Don't tell me God is, is being stingy when it comes to information about the eternal abode of those who love the Lord and follow Him. So for you and me, for followers of Christ, our understanding of heaven is absolutely dependent upon, solely dependent upon the one true source for heaven, and that is the Bible, the Word of God. If you hold your place in the New Testament and drift back into the Old Testament, it's always good to work in that old book once in a while. But I think there's a powerful nugget of truth that you find in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 29, that helps us to understand the significance of relying solely on the Bible to understand and appreciate heaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 and in verse 29, You understand that we don't know everything that God knows. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, God says, Hey, look, y'all, this is southern element. Your your thoughts are not my thoughts, or my thoughts are not your thoughts. Just as your ways are not my ways. In case you haven't noticed, I'm God. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours. And my thoughts are higher than yours. So don't smugly walk around thinking that you know everything God knows. You can memorize the Bible. You can internalize the Bible. But I'll tell you what you still won't know everything God knows. And you know what, folks? That's okay with me. Because I know that our God reveals to us everything He wants us to know. Not only that, God reveals everything that we need to know. And so look at... Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And there are secret things. There are things that you and I are going to discover when we get to heaven that will just absolutely blow our glorified minds. I don't know how that registers, but anyway, it'll be absolutely mind boggling. So the secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the words of the law, of this law. So you understand? Everything that God wants you and me to know about heaven, He has revealed. And I'll tell you this, the only understanding that man has of heaven is simply because God, out of His love and His goodness and His mercy, reveals it. He didn't have to tell us a thing. But as I said, 580 times in the Scriptures, He speaks about heaven. The Bible is God's inerrant, infallible Word. And everything that God desires for us to know about heaven, He has revealed right here in this book. And I emphasize that. 
And Christ, and Christ alone, is the only authority on heaven. After all, He's the only one that has come down from heaven. And He's the only one that can speak authoritatively on the matter of heaven. And so, this series will be based on the teachings about heaven that we find in the inerrant Word of God with comments to help us to understand by scholars that I pointed out. So what the Bible reveals about heaven and the afterlife and angels is not only accurate, it's sufficient. And you say, well, Pastor, why are you, why are you laboring on that? There's a reason, so hang in there. Because for those who would dare to try to add to or take away from where God is revealed, there is an eternal warning. I mean a very ominous warning at the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation in chapter 22, verse 18, the Lord says through John, Revelation 22, 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And, verse 19, if anyone <clears throat> takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Those two verses ought to strike terror and trembling in the heart of anyone who would dare to move beyond the perimeters and the borders of the Word of God on any subject, including the subject of heaven. So therefore, we who have a deep longing for heaven base our understanding on heaven as the children of God on the Word of God. We also reject all unscriptural teachings on the subject of heaven. You know, it's interesting. Barner, in a research on this subject, George Barner, and I'll quote, he says, <clears throat> An overwhelming majority of Americans continue to believe that there is a life, there is a life after death and that heaven and hell exist. But what people believe about heaven and hell varies widely. They're cutting and pasting religious views from a variety of sources, television, movies, and conversations with their peers. The result is a highly subjective theology of the afterlife disconnected from the biblical doctrine of heaven. And therein lies the problem, brothers and sisters. Ask yourself, who in all of creation has the greatest interest in, sub, in subverting the things of God. Who in all of creation, in all of eternity, has the greatest interest in subverting the things of God? Time's up. Satan. Satan. And we see that even in the book of Revelation as he's, as he's controlling his... his um, uh, Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. Let me just take you over there. Or you can just listen as, he's, as, as John is describing this, this powerful, demonically, diabolically empowered 
figure who will come on the world scene and, and he's nothing more than a supernatural puppet in the hands of Satan. But listen to what John says in Revelation 13, 6 about this Antichrist. Then he, he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. You see, Satan is, Jesus says in John 8, he's the father of lies. And if he can't absolutely eradicate the Word of God, then he'll do his best to subvert it. To cause people to question it. To try to alter it. Especially on the matter of Satan. Satan attacks God's person. He attacks God's place. He attacks God's people. And how has he done it? We've seen it played out for centuries. Going all the way back to the first century where you see heretical groups like the Gnostics who came up on the scene trying to undermine the Word of God and the teachings of Scriptures on all matters of life and even eternal life. But then I'm going to bring it up to, to, to contemporary times, if we will. In the decade of the 60s, and I realize that predates some of our younger members, but I remember it. In that turbulent time, there was all kinds of, 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 of new fads and new notions. And, but beginning back, back in the decade of the 1960s, there, there has been a, an increasing fascination among secular people about heaven and the afterlife. I remember as a student at Wake Forest in, in, in my studies being required to read writings by Elizabeth uh, Kubler-Ross. And, and she did many studies on people who were dying and, and, and those who claimed to have near-death experiences or after-death. And, and, and she did extensive studies on thousands of people and, and was intrigued herself that she was an atheist. She was intrigued about this, these experiences these people were having. They seemed to be so convincing about, about going into the afterlife and, and seeing the light and, and going into a, a, a warm and comforting environment and meeting these comforting people. And, and so she began to explore that herself and she, she became a believer in, in, in this whole phenomena. But sadly, you see, because she was an instrument in the hands of the very one who subverted the Word of God, Satan, she became eventually the guru of, of, of an occultic movement that promotes New Ageism. And that's what happens so many times with so many of these people who come out with these kinds of things. Needless to say that in the 1990s we saw this phenomenon take a tragic turn as all of a sudden Christians and Christian book writers and Christian publishers began to see the money that was being made in, in these books of these people that had had so-called out-of-the-body experiences and near-death experiences or had died and, and, and come back. And so we, we, we see this, this whole movement of rushing in on this diabolical mo movement so, so as to capitalize on it. And I'm ashamed to say that Christian publishing companies are publishing these books left and right by people who made claims about having died and, and gone to heaven and came back. Could, could I just submit something for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen? Think about it. If God didn't allow Lazarus to elaborate on his after-death experience in the Scriptures, 
If God didn't allow the Apostle Paul to expound on his out-of-the-body experience in which he ascended to the third heaven and came back in the Scriptures, then I ask you, why in the world is God going to allow these questionable characters to make money doing so outside of the Holy Word of God? And yet Christians by the flocks are buying up and gobbling up these books and these experiences. Dr. MacArthur was talking about a couple of them. A man by the name of Burpo who had written a book because his small child supposedly had died and gone into heaven and saw Jesus as a round, plump, short guy and he was riding on a polka dot unicorn and how everything was so beautiful and came back, be able to tell it and his dad could write a book and huh, just coincidentally his dad got rich. <laughs> you might recall another one that came out, Kevin Malarkey, I think that's an appropriate name, but anyway, his son, seven years old, I believe, was involved in a tragic accident and supposedly died and, and, and went to heaven and, and, and came back. And, and, and so as, the son, as his son scribe, he writes this book about this after-death experience. And, and, and yet, then, a few years later, the boy, he's, at this time he's a quadriplegic, but, but he's living with his mother, and he's absolutely horrified over the fact that his father has written a book about supposedly his experience, which he says is an absolute total lie. Not one shred of truth in it. You see, Satan will go to all lengths to try to dupe people. And so oftentimes these books on these supposedly subjective experiences of people dying and going to heaven and coming back and telling what... Listen, they promote the very things that the Scriptures warn us about. Oftentimes these books will end up promoting concepts that are unbiblical like universalism, like somehow everybody's going to get there through different religions and everything because God just loves everybody and He told me to tell you all that. So oftentimes these false writings will also, these supposedly subjective experiences will, will oftentimes become conduits through which well-meaning people, innocent but biblically illiterate, will, will buy into these experiences and then what happens? They find themselves drawn towards the occult. They find themselves drawn towards New Ageism. They find themselves drawn towards things. Listen, the thing Dr. MacArthur said in his book as he talked about these so-called subjective experiences that people have been writing books about in movies and television programs and, and, and things that people are just eating up. Dr. MacArthur said any experience claiming to have gone to heaven in return is false. Plain and simple. It's up to us that we make sure that when we start thinking about heaven and we start talking about heaven, that we base our knowledge on the one true source on heaven. And that is the Word of God. Now having this understanding about the longing of heaven, our longing for heaven, and our understanding of heaven, very quickly I want to just leave this thought with you. And that is our assurance of heaven. Our assurance of heaven. Dr. Randy Alcorn said, for every American who believes he's going to hell, there's 120 who believe they're going to heaven. Think about it. Out of every 120 Americans who, who think they're going, 
Out of every person that thinks they're going to heaven, there's a, hell, there's 120 people who think they're going to heaven. In other words, and you talk to people. I guarantee you, the vast majority of people you encounter. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. You think you're going to go to heaven? Yes. But then you probe them. You push them a little bit. Ask them about the relationship with the Lord. Ask them about their commitment with, with Jesus Christ. Ask them about their decision to follow Christ. Ask them about passages of Scripture like Luke 9, 23, where Jesus says, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Ask them about how their life daily represents a commitment to follow Christ and to sacrifice whatever necessary. Then you'll find out. But in their mind, they're okay. Sure, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a good person. I used to go to church. I, I, my grandparents were Christian. I've, I've, I heard Billy Graham once. <laughs> Folks, that flies in the face of the teachings of Christ in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said about this whole phenomenon in, in Matthew chapter 7. He says, enter by, the, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who are going in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The reality the scripture teaches us, and we, we, we touched on this before. The, the, the reality is the scripture teaches us that the vast majority of the people who have lived on the face of the earth, who are living on the face of the earth, and who will live on the face of the earth prior to the coming of Christ, the majority of the people will die and spend eternity separated from God in a hideous place of torment called hell. That's not my words. That's the words of Christ. But for those of us who yearn for heaven, those of us who have a true biblical understanding of heaven, we have the assurance that heaven is our home. We don't have to live with a question mark. We don't have to live in doubt. Because the very Son of God promised it. In John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world. That doesn't mean every person on the face of the earth. Is going to be saved. That's not what that scripture is saying. Jesus is simply saying that God loves all the tribes, all the people, all the ethnic groups of the world. They will be represented in heaven one day. But he says, whoever believes in him, Jesus, shall have eternal life, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, the Son of God promises that heaven is attainable to those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who will commit to follow him with their life. And their lifestyle reflect that kind of a commitment. And what's so powerful about it. Is it's not by works. It's not what you do. It's not what you earn. You don't merit heaven. You and I don't deserve heaven. We receive heaven as a result of our faith. It can happen so dramatically. As we saw in Luke's gospel in chapter 23, there as Jesus was hanging on the cross and he was dying for our sins, we see a very interesting scenario unfold as Jesus is in between two criminals that are hanging on the cross. One is ridiculing Jesus and mocking him, but the other answered and rebuked that one, saying, Do you not even fear God's sin? You are under this same, the, the same condemnation? In verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then, let me tell you something. This is confession. Then he, he, he said to the Lord, Lord, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. And listen to what Jesus said to that thief on the cross. You know this. In verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How in the world can an accused and convicted, condemned criminal find himself in heaven? I'll tell you the same way that you and I find our way in heaven one day. That is because we sincerely put our faith and trust in the Son of God. By faith, the Son of God promised heaven in John 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is he, he's reassuring his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions or many dwelling places, probably more accurately. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, there you can be also. There you will be also. But I want you to understand something. Jesus is not teaching this to the multitudes. Jesus is not in a big stadium with countless thousands of people gathered around and saying, Hey, everybody, I go to prepare a place for you all. He's talking to 12 men. And then to those who will hear the clear ringing of the gospel message passed down by those 12 men. Narrow is the gate. Few go this way. But for those who are truly following Christ, there is the promise of heaven. And then the Spirit seals it. The Spirit. What the Son has promised about heaven, ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you today and say with a great sense of joy in my heart, the Spirit of God seals it. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is in heaven, or from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, we shall not be disembodied spirits floating around. We'll have bodies. For we, are, for we who are in this tent, our bodies, grown, be, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is the same word that Paul uses over in Ephesians in chapter 1 when he talks about the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of a promise that God has given to us by His Son. When Paul, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he talks about how we have the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That Greek word, arabon, means it is an assurance. It is an assurance. That we have. So what God's Son has promised us in His Word, the Spirit of God assures us it's a seal. That word Arabon in the Greek is the same concept that we use for a down payment. If you put a down payment on something, you're as much as saying, I will pay the full price. It's a guarantee. It's like an engagement ring. You know? Whitney, yours is glaring in my eyes here. but Yeah, Whitney, listen up. That engagement ring is more than just jewelry, honey. It is an arabon. 
It is a guarantee. What Jeffrey promised you, he's going to come through with it. If he doesn't, he's got us to deal with, right? Yeah, it's a guarantee. The Spirit in our hearts is a daily, every hour, minute by minute guarantee that the promise of heaven, the Spirit has sealed. It's as good as done. There's nothing that can separate you and me from the promise that when we leave this world, we will wake up in the very presence of God and enjoy the splendor of heaven forever and forever. Oh, praises be unto God, the Apostle Paul, and I close out in 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 8 through 8. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. To be present with the Lord. A literal understanding of that, that, that phrase, present with the Lord, means to be at home. To be at home with the Lord. John says, don't don't fall into the trap of loving this world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Where? In the very presence of God. To God be the glory. To God be the glory.